0: Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read the first six verses. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We pray that God will bless this reading of his word. I can remember this particular Saturday morning very vividly. It was last October, and my attention was drawn to Japan. Because Ireland were due to take on Samoa in the World Cup. And I come downstairs, and you'll remember if you watch the rugby, a lot of the matches were early. This wasn't a particularly early one, but I went downstairs and I turned the TV on. And my attention was immediately drawn away from Japan and to Vienna. I'm not sure if anybody else had this same experience. I said, forget the rugby, this is what I'm interested in. Because a Kenyan runner by the name of Iliad Kipchoge was attempting to run the first sub two-hour marathon. That captivated my attention. I was was just drawn in. That was me. But what struck me um, um, most about that achievement, he actually managed it. He finished 20 seconds under two hours. But what struck me most about that was as the run was happening, they were explaining how everything was put together. And they had to assemble a team, and had months of planning, and they had a, they had a meteorologist who chose the particular city. So Vienna was known for its mild climate, and there wasn't wasn't very windy, so they chose Vienna. They had a sports architects who designed the course, so uh, there was sweeping bends, no sharp corners. They had uh, a vehicle team that drove along beforehand with with these uh, technicians on it who who projected a line onto the ground. And that was the line that you had to run at in order to get the two hours. So they knew where they had to focus and run. And they had sports nutritionists who handed out all of the the fluids and the the sports drinks and the sports gels. There was an entire set of course stewards. And then there were this team of 43 world-class runners who rotated in and out. They were pace setters. So a team of them rotated in, and they ran with this Kenyan runner, and they ran in a sort of a a V-shape in front of them to reduce the air resistance. And then after six miles, they went out, and another team came in, and then they went out, and another team came in so they could keep the pace up. It was was fantastic. And all of that came together to achieve the first sub-2-hour marathon time. And what really struck me about that was if, if Elliot Kipchoge had decided to go out some Saturday morning and do that himself, he wouldn't have been able to do it. He would never have got anywhere near it. It needed the team. It needed everybody around him. It needed all everybody to play a part. There was a goal to be achieved. Everyone was focused on that goal. They were united in purpose. They worked together. They played their part. It was a wonderful picture of unity. Some people might say, well, if you've heard the, uh, the news reports lately, there's some dispute over the training shoes that he was wearing and whether they gave him an unfair advantage. But it was a wonderful picture of unity, everyone playing their part, working together to achieve a goal. One of the themes that runs right the way through much of the New Testament is the theme of unity, a call for Christians to maintain Unity. That's because your walk with God is designed by God to be a community project. Your walk with God is designed by God to be a community project. It's to be worked out with other believers as part of a local church. Anonymous, consumerist, isolated, independent, self-sufficient Christianity. It's a distant and distorted picture of the faith that's laid out for us in the New Testament. Just like Eliot Kipchoge couldn't have done it on his own, Christians struggle to do it on their own if they remain isolated from other believers. Peter and Paul use great illustrations to describe this, don't they? They talk about a living temple being built up with with stone, different stones being built together with Christ as the cornerstone. All of the stones need each other. Paul, when he talks to the Corinthian believers, he talks about a, a body and different members of the body. And each member of the church being like a member of the body with Christ as the head. And how can the ear say to the eye, I have no need for you because where would the sight be? It's the same thing with the church. How can we say to one another, we don't need you. We do. We need each other. That's the picture of the faith that's laid out for us in the New Testament. These illustrations, they decimate the idea that healthy Christianity can be lived outside of the church. Other believers and the church is essential for our growth and our walk. So we're called to live out our faith in community. Let's be realistic. If you've been part of a church for any length of time, you might know that sometimes that isn't always the case. Sometimes that can be difficult. Sometimes churches can become places of, division. But God's plan for the world is the church. That's how he plays, displays his manifest wisdom to the world is through the church. He calls this group of sinners out of the world to be gathered together as a church, calls them to live as a Christian community, to display the power of the gospel to a lost and needy world. When the church functions as it's intended, it speaks volumes. The challenge for us then is how do we maintain this type of unity which preserves the gospel, this type of unity that acts as a compelling testimony to the value of the gospel. How do we display unity? How good are we at maintaining unity? What are our lives to be, look like to be people of unity? Well, I think these first six verses that we've read in Ephesians really helps us to answer some of those questions. So, keep your Bibles open as we work through these six verses. We're going to pull out three things. Lots that could be said in here, but try to pull out three things that might help us think through unity. The first thing we can see in verse one is the priority of unity. The priority of unity. Paul starts chapter four here with the words, therefore, that lets us know it's connected to everything that's gone before. If you know something of the letter to the Ephesian church, you'll know that most commentators say that the first three chapters are deep theology, it's talking about what God has done in Christ, and then here, verse four, chap- or chapter four, verse one, there's a switch to being a little bit more practical. So, therefore, in light of all that's gone before, then do this. That's what most commentators would say about this letter. First three chapters are full of deep doctrine, full of theology, but essentially it's all about what God has done in Christ for the world. And he he outlines, if you like, verse chapter 4 verse 1 talks to us about this calling that we've been called to. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And that's what he's been doing in the first three chapters. He's been highlighting for us what our calling is. So if you do a survey of the first three chapters, you find things like this. If you're a Christian, this is your calling. This is what God has done for you in Christ. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He saved you by his grace. He displayed his great mercy on you. When you were an enemy of God, when you deserved nothing but his wrath, he showed you mercy and grace. He lavished the riches of his grace on us. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He's given us redemption through his blood. He's adopted us into his family. Wow, that is our calling if we are a Christian, what God has done for us in Christ. We are blessed beyond measure. We are adopted into the family of God. That should cause us to rejoice, to be glad, to be delighted, what God has done for us in Christ. That is our calling. So we're to live in a manner worthy of that calling. Well, what what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of this calling? If I was to give you a sheet of paper, do a survey and say, what does it mean? I think you'd write down things like, well, it means to read our Bibles. It means to pray. It means to attend church. It means to tell others the good news. And that's all right. That is all part and parcel of our calling. But I find it very interesting what the apostle Paul here links our calling as Christians to, directly links, significantly links. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that. He goes directly to maintaining unity. I wonder if you ever thought about that. Part of my calling as a Christian is to maintain unity in the church. I don't know if uh, that struck you, but I think it's significant. Paul connects that too. So there's a biblical mandate for Christians to maintain, to strive for, and to pursue unity. Unity in the church should be one of our top priorities. So many things that we should be working hard at and getting on with it, and that's good, they're all part of our calling, but unity must be part and parcel of what our calling as a Christian. You might think, that's no problem, I've got that one down, I've got that sorted, I'm not very divisive, I don't, I don't, I don't rock the boat, you know, I'm not a very divisive person, I just, I'm easygoing. going. Um, that's kind of a passive reaction. This verse calls for action. And the, the ASV that I read from this morning says, make every effort. The NIV says, or the NIV says, make every effort. The ASV says, be eager. There's action required here. As you come to church, is unity in the church at the forefront of your mind? As you pray, For the church? Is unity in the church a focus of your prayers? As you serve, as you serve as a deacon, as you serve in the praise band, as you serve in the children's ministry, is unity a priority? Or is it about, well, I really want it that way because that's the way I want it? Or is unity a priority in your mind? It flows straight out of our calling as a Christian. It should be a priority. And what is the result? when believers make unity a priority? Well, if we look down on through the chapter, we didn't read it, but if you jump down to verse 16 and you jump in halfway through the verse, you can see the result. It says this, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful picture. When each part of the body is working properly, striving for maintaining unity, the body builds itself up in love not a wonderful picture, isn't that what we want for Windsor Baptist Church? A church that is building itself up in love. That a watching world sees that and goes, There's something special about those people. That's the priority of unity. Flicking on through, the second thing that we can pull out of this passage is, is the basis of our unity, or the ground for our unity. Well, we're told to maintain unity. Well, where does this unity come from? Where's the basis of it? Where's the ground for it? Well, I think verses five and four, five, and six help us with that. Let me read it again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Hopefully you're able to pick up the key word in that passage. Um, one, it appears seven times. Some commentators make a big deal if that's the number of perfection. I'm not so sure about that, but regardless of whether that's true or not, Paul's trying to make a point here that where our unity comes from, the basis of our unity, is essentially saying there's one God, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one faith, that, and there's one, one gospel, And it's through the one spirit that those people who believe in Jesus Christ are brought into God's church, one church. You see, unity is a product of our faith in Jesus Christ. So as we individually recognize that we're sinners, recognize that we're enemies of God, that we need our sins forgiven, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf, as we put our faith and trust in him, We are, by God's Spirit, united to God in Christ. That's wonderful. That's that's spirit. That's right to the core of our very spirit. But as we do that individually, as each of us do that individually, then what happens is when we are united to God in Christ, we are united to one another in Christ. Unity comes as a result of our faith in Christ and being brought into God's family. You'll see here in these verses as well that there are three persons of the Trinity are mentioned, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And essentially what we're saying here is that there is some degree in which we share in the unity of the Trinity when we are united to God in Christ by the Spirit. And that means that our, our, uh, our unity isn't just some kind of superficial gathering together. It's not just a, a, a collection of people in a room. The reality is, is that our, the unity that we have is created by the gospel. The Spirit creates it through the gospel right to the very core of our beings. Something deep and spiritual in our beings. One commentator has called this unity a cosmic unity, essentially trying to say something outside of the known world. Unity is theologically grounded in the Godhead. It's to be celebrated, maintained, and lived out in the church. That's a picture of the unity that we enjoy. It's not just some superficial thing. We are united to our brothers and sisters in Christ right at the very core of our being. There's a spiritual unification that has gone on there between believers in the church. God's about the business of calling out of people for his own possession and calling them together in the church. I don't know if you come to Feen Street at 10.30 on a Sunday morning and you look around and you stand here and you look at the different people in this gathering. You kind of think, you know, do, do you ever just step back a moment and go, what's going on here? Why are you all here? You think of the different people in the room, Okay? There's older people, there's younger people. Think of the different minds in the room. There's some analytical people, there's some calm people, there's some nervous people, there's artistic people, there's mathematical people. Think of the different backgrounds. Ethnically, there's different ethnicities in the room. That's wonderful. Just think about all of that. Think of the different professions in the room. Think of all the different interests. Some people like gardening. Some people like upcycling furniture. Some people like fishing. I don't like any of those three things. But why are you all here? Why are you here? 10.30, we all, all these different people rock up here. Why are you here? We see it's wonderful why we're here. We're not here. We're not gathering because of our interests. We're not gathering because of our backgrounds. We're not gathering because of our age. We're gathering because of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. God's called us out of the world to faith in his son, Jesus. He's called us to gather as this church, to worship him, to encourage one another. We're not united by our interests. We're united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a message that truly unites people. It's the only message that truly unites people and brings people together. That's why we're here. We're united in Christ. It's a wonderful picture of what's happening here all of these different people. were one in Christ. I wonder if you're here this morning and I'm talking about this faith in Jesus Christ, and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to urge you that God is offering forgiveness of sin. God is offering you adoption into his family. God is offering you to join with these other people in this church, to worship him and to love him by saying that you need Jesus Christ and by putting your faith and trust in him alone for salvation. I want to encourage you to do that this morning if you haven't already done that. So that's the basis of our unity. It's a priority of unity. That's the basis of our unity. The basis of our unity being that we don't create the unity, but we're called to maintain the unity. The gospel creates the unity. We're called to maintain the unity. And Finally, the character of our unity. So what should our lives look like? What should our lives be marked by? to be people of unity. We see that in verses two and three. It comes out of verses two and three. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's four virtues here. If you want to be a person of unity, there's four virtues that we need to work at. Now, we don't work at these things in order to earn God's favor. No, we've got to remember that God God sees, God's favor is is, is lavished on us because of what Christ did on the cross. But in response to that, to be people of unity, we want to be marked by these characters. Firstly, humility. Humility gets a little bit of a bad press in our society in these days, doesn't it? You don't see much humility. It doesn't sell many records. Humility doesn't make many reality TV shows, does it? No, no. We're, we live in a man centered world, and sometimes some of that thinking pervades into the church. Well, we don't want to be doormats, we don't want to be walked on, we want to get forward. We've got to recognize that humility is part of our calling as a Christian. We have to have a God centered attitude. How do we do that? Well, our perspective can be radically changed if we think of the greatest example of humility Jesus Christ. The very act of leaving heaven, coming to earth, taking on the form of a man, he demonstrated an unfathomable humbling of himself. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. On the last night with his disciples, what did Jesus do? He took a towel and a basin. He washed their feet. He says, now you go do likewise. Wonderful example of humility. Humility. Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan preacher, said this. He said, We must view humility as one of the most essential things that marks true Christianity. If you want to see true Christianity, we have to see humility. That works itself out in the church, doesn't it? Philippians chapter two, where we we talked about that, our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ who humbled himself. Just before that, it says, well, each of us should look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That's how it plays out in the church. Be humble, look to others' interests before our own interests. What's the opposite? Pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility builds Community. Let's be people who are humble. Secondly, gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness is a beautiful quality, isn't it? We we kind of know those people, don't we? Who are gentle people. We kind of go, Yeah, that person, they're gentle. It's a beautiful quality, isn't it? The opposite isn't just so nice. But we know those people who are gentle and we go, Mm, they're gentle. That's that's lovely. We sometimes get fall into the trap that it's inherent in their character. Well they're they're gentle people. Well Gentleness is listed in those attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's something that every Christian should be growing in, gentleness. Even the men. Sometimes the men might go, oh, the gentleness, that's for the ladies. Well, think of the term gentleman. You know, we describe people as being a gentleman. i gentle? There's something there about being gentle. We don't know what, uh, what struggles people are going through. Think of Jesus And Jesus, when he spent time with the woman at the well, he was gentle with her. Yes, he was direct with her and he rebuked her, but he was gentle with her. We don't know what burdens people are carrying, what hidden griefs people are concerned with. Life can be brutal and harsh. Sometimes people need a gentle touch. We need to work at being people who are gentle, humble and gentle. Thirdly, patience. Patience. Um, I think it's wonderful, I think, here that, you know, I think the Apostle Paul is being really practical. Yes, he's highlighted the deep theology, and then he moves to being really practical patients. Um, often what happens is people behave in a way that's, although it's not directed to us, it irritates us or it disappoints us. Let me give you an example of that. This is something I'm sure many people would would be familiar with, I imagine. You're driving down the road, and the person in front of you maybe is dilly-dallying a little bit or going too slow. And you're sitting in the car, and you're going, oh, get out of the way. Move, turn. Would you just turn? Would you?" And they're probably not sitting in their car going, I'm going to annoy the person behind me. They're just about their business. But we're the ones who are getting annoyed and irritated and frustrated. That happens sometimes in the church. People act in a particular way. Sometimes you go, oh, 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 they're not setting out to annoy us, but we're often the ones that are irritated. We need to be patient, which is long-suffering, long-suffering. We need to look at ourselves, see how God views us. God is patient with us. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That's how God treats us. We need to do likewise with others, be patient, slow to anger. Finally, forbearance, bearing with one another in love is the final of the four attributes. It means it means putting up with people, bearing with people, recognizing even that people are gonna be different from me. People have their own quirks. Maybe people have different outlooks on things. Not all people are the same as me or not all see it my way or my perspective. Um, we're not called to change people. We're called to bear with one another in love, accept people for who they are. We need to see that the love of Christ makes allowances for people's shortcomings. The love of Christ made allowances for my shortcomings and I've got plenty of them. The love of Christ makes allowances for your shortcomings. We need to make allowances for other people's shortcomings. And what's the key to bearing with one another? Well, bear with one another in love. In love. How do we develop love for one another? Well, the best way to do that is to begin to pray for Somebody else, if you're struggling with somebody, once you start to pray for them, you start to see life from their perspective. You start to get an idea of where they're coming from. You get to see an idea of some of the things that are, that are difficult for them or they're struggling with. Love praying for people and with people develops love. What did Jesus Christ say? He says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you what have love one for another. Let's bear with one another in love. The author Tozer has a great example of, of unity. And he says, if you, take a, if you take a tuning fork and you tune a piano to a tuning fork, the piano is in tune with the tuning fork. And if you take the, the tuning fork and you go to another piano and tune another piano to the tuning fork, that piano is in tune with the tuning fork. You do that with 100 pianos, you have 100 pianos all in tune with the tuning fork. But what else do you have? You have 100 pianos that are all in tune with each other wonderful picture of unity. That should be the picture of us as we seek to be people who are humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love. We need to look to Jesus Christ. We need to ask for his spirit to work in our hearts. We want to become more like him. We want his grace to overflow in our hearts and our lives. That as we strive to be more like him, and as each of us independently strive to be more like our savior, Jesus Christ, we will all strive to become more united in love, one with another. Being united to other believers in Christ is a mystery. It's a, a, the unity that we have is not created by us. It's created by the gospel as we are one in Christ. It's a wonderful privilege to be part of God's family. Let us all commit to be people who are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let us make unity in the church a priority. Let's keep it at the forefront of our minds. Let us be people who are humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. And let's do that only in the grace and strength that God alone can provide for us. Let me finish off our time here looking at this subject with the words of Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is wonderful words on this subject, but it comes with a promise. It comes with a promise. It says this, how good and pleasant it is When brothers and sisters dwell in unity, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May God, by his Spirit, continue to work this out in each of our own hearts and in our lives and in the life of this local church. And that's my prayer for you as a church in Windsor Baptist Church, that you'll be a people who are marked by love, that you're united for the gospel, that you're building One another up in love. May God bless us all. Thank you. Mm